Welcome to the Bayesian Conspiracy. I'm Eniash Brodsky. I'm Stephen Zuber. I am Jay Sticky. And we actually got a comment on our faux intro where we all pretended to be other people last time. And someone was like, damn it, it was my first episode. You guys really screwed me over. Yeah, oh, we should definitely keep doing it. <laughs> no, we should not. I thought it would be really funny if we just like switched the first and last names like as many ways as possible. I forget what a three by three is, but... <laughs> But uh, yeah, I guess we're sorry about that. Really didn't think that would be anyone's first episode. Uh, and now we will continue on to a regular episode. We always do feedback after the sequence posts, right? No, I don't, I don't know if think... we always do anything. Yeah. Mm, yeah, okay. Let's do feedback first. Feedback first this time. Okay, then. Uh, real quick, as long as we're talking about people giving us feedback, we have Os IV, I think, or maybe Os4. I'm not sure. Uh, this is from our subreddit. Uh, commenting on the IQ Shredder discussion... Uh, I feel an important possibility was overlooked. When people with high IQs do not come to IQ Shredder cities, do those people reproduce at higher rates? I'm suspicious that the people attracted to IQ Shredders have innate qualities that make them less likely to have offspring wherever they are. The IQ, IQ Shredders may not be causing them to have few, fewer children, but rather concentrating people who are already unlikely to have children in one place. Uh, I thought that was an interesting thing to bring to the subject. I think there were some arguments as to why... Uh, living in dense cities actually does reduce um, reproduction rate. It, it might compound the issue, but that's a really good point. I think in general, this is a thing I think is true, that more highly educated and then therefore probably more high IQ people tend to have fewer offspring anyway. They do nowadays. That wasn't the case in the past. Well, but we're worried about now. Right. Yeah. But I mean, I don't think it's necessarily just the case that if you have higher IQ, you're less likely to reproduce because you know before the 1900s or so, it wasn't the case. Smarter people. I still don't think it's the case for all, like, anyone over 100 or whatever the average right. is. Yeah. Uh, there's... I thought you meant an age. I'm like, I'm pretty sure they're not reproducing. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> not yet. Growth mindset. Yeah. No, definitely, like, is sort of a, I don't know, it's jumping the gun on in terms of causality. There's a lot of other things that, wow, no examples come to mind immediately, but where, oh, it looks like this thing is a problem because it's causing people to behave in this way. And then it turns out, like... When you dig deeper into it, oh, actually, it turns out that people are already predisposed to behave this way, yeah. are doing the thing. There's uh, a good example of that in students who go to charter schools tend to have better outcomes. Okay, yeah, that's and a good one. So then you do a little deeper digging, and it turns out students who apply to charter schools and don't get in also have better outcomes. It's so the it's, it's the, the being the kind of person who cares about that kind of thing, or the one or the kind of person with parents who care about that sort of thing. But right. either way, yeah, <laughs> um, it. The, yeah, the causal error wasn't obvious. So, It's one of the... Now I'm thinking of examples, but uh, it makes me a little bit more unsure about, like, what is it called? Radical unschooling? Whether that's as great as I want to believe and currently think that it is, because maybe just the kinds of parents who would radically unschool their kids are already the kind of parents that would have, like, had smart kids, but... I think that there are enough other examples of this being like a sort of a natural experiment, like a, I forget if it was like in Ghana, but there was some poor city where they just put a bunch of laptops somewhere and the kids ended up teaching themselves and like getting into universities just by tinkering with the laptop and teaching each other. I remember that article. I also a few weeks later saw some follow up where they said the case was grossly overstated in the original one. Oh, I know. It, it struck me as implausible. Application crisis again. Yeah. It struck me as implausible just to begin with, just because the idea that you just drop a crate full of laptops and people figure out a how they work and how to do something interesting on them. I mean, where would they recharge them? 
Yeah, they have to have some technology around. Well, I think they already, set right? it up in a building with power. Yeah. Um, Fair enough. But it sounded really plausible to me because I'm mostly self-taught and a All lot right. of people I know are. And like Back in the day, they didn't have places where they taught you programming. You had to find an old teach-yourself-programming manual and read through it yourself. I still wonder how much... like. I'm getting very distracted by this person banging on this window with a ladder in the background. Oh it, my god, that poor fucking window. In case people are picking up on anything on the feed, there's people doing construction outside of Inuyasha's house. So, And if that window has a screen, he's fucking that screen all up. Is indeed. I'd be okay leaving some of that in, it's funny. Re- um, it I like Patreon content. <laughs> <laughs> they want to just get... The- it's funny, like, we punish the patrons. They get to see how the sausage is made. I, well, that's what I love. I love blooper reels and, yeah, like, being able to get the behind-the-scenes of stuff I like. So I... Oh, it looks like he's leaning in on the... On, yes, he is. I mean, the, the glass is strong enough to take it. Um, unless it's the, already been structurally weakened. That's the screen. Yeah. <sighs> the screen. <laughs> God, like, he could just move it over a couple of feet, and there's, like, wood that he could lean it against. Oh, no. Don't fall. It doesn't look stable. What's he even doing? <gasps> Whatever. Anyways, let's get back to this podcast we're trying to record today. I don't have a job. We're falling off the ladder is a real risk. My dad fell off a ladder and broke his back, and Ooh. then like oh, fuck. it healed and he was fine. And he like continued. I don't know. He's still like he's like sixty one or two and still up on roofs doing crazy shit with his ladder made of wood that he's had since uh, before I was born. Did he not have permanent? Uh, like oftentimes you break your back, you have no. permanent pain for the rest of your life or some kind of crippling or something. My dad like broke his skull and had like it fused together into this strange ridge on the top of his head that during some childhood accident and he's like well now i can never like trim my hair too short or it'll look like i have a weird bone mohawk but on the other hand i've been able to be hit by like two by fours and all kinds of shit and just like so so it's kind of a superpower <laughs> it's got to teach us all how to break our skulls that way no i think he's just a like genetic mutant who isn't able to be 62 and still like doing hard carpentry labor all right like get get some blood from your dad and submit it somewhere so that we can reverse engineer this half of his genetics do you have the half that lets you be that awesome in your 60s hope so okay well then find maybe out. we can take your blood <laughs> like like quick grab him maybe i'll just get better with age hmm Hopefully. Hope so. <laughs> like yeah. a fine wine. Exactly. <laughs> Speaking of fine wines and things that age very well, let's go to our less wrong posts. Yeah, we've got some sequences for you Yeah. this week. And the first one we have is ad- Adaptation Executors, Not Fitness Maximizers, which it sticks in your mind and it helps to... Um, it was a thing that helped change my view on how humans work by a fair bit when I first read it. Although I was still pretty young when I first read it, but I think this is a really handy one. It stuck with me. I think it's one of those ones that has a pithy title, even if it's lots of syllables, and you remember often enough to implement that. Some some of them are somewhat esoteric or whatever, and, oh yeah, I remember reading that before, but then you forget about it a year later. Mm-hmm. This one I never forgot, so. It is actually important to have, like, memorable and descriptive titles for that purpose, I think. Yeah. And yeah. The sequences tend to be pretty good at that. The, the title of this one is the TLDR. Yeah. Indeed. <laughs> yep. Animals are adaptation execution adaptation executors not fitness maximizers exactly so when you see an animal doing something that doesn't look like it makes sense for its reproductive fitness ask yourself would that sort of behavior be adaptive to its ancestors and often the answer is yes yeah yeah the example they start with is just food and the fact that uh micronutrients that were really abundant in leaves and nuts are absent from bread but our taste buds don't complain 
Super ice cream is a super stimulus containing more sugary fat and salt than anything in the ancestral environment. So, like, <laughs> basically... Our taste buds picked up on the things that were really rare and make us want to seek those out. Yeah, and like... So we don't notice when we're not getting micronutrients because we didn't have that problem limiting us in the, you know, in the distant past, but we did have problems of caloric restriction limiting us. So that's why uh, we adapted to seek those things out. Yeah, like, getting into, real quick, the book the hungry brain steven goyanet he goes even deeper into that where specifically we have little buttons on our tongue that tell us when things are salty meaty sugary or fatty and these are the things that turn off our what is it called satiety center in our brain the part that tells you that you're full and then like we as a society are like why why this obesity epidemic Mm. Like, but meanwhile, we've also invented McDonald's, which just cranks out for incredibly cheap, like the highest, like most hypothalamically exciting food. <laughs> they have a hundred billion served. You have to respect that. <laughs> Wait, have Sorry. they started to colonize the stars already? Or <laughs> no, it's it's a it's a reference from Worth the Candle. Well, and it's a fact. Oh, yeah, they, yeah, they, yeah, yeah. yeah, I mean, it's not that they've served every person on Earth. They've served on average more than. Whatever, right? Yeah. I, I'm not. I didn't. Say I have that eaten correctly. McDonald's more than once in my life, so right. I count as more than one as part of the 100 billion. Yeah, yeah. yeah not 100 billion that, uh... people served. 100 billion meals, meals delivered, right, yeah. to customers. Yeah. Okay. Shit, I had something funny for this. Um, it's gone. Never mind. Sorry. But you'll find it in like 30 seconds. That's what always happens to me. It doesn't matter. Yeah. Sorry. I I thought it would come back when I started the sentence. Yeah, it's all good. It's probably something about sex. <laughs> All the funny things in life are about sex. Or pooping, apparently. Or pooping, yeah. I just, like, rewatched all of Rick and Morty, and I was nice. just like, there's way more poop jokes in this than I remember. Yeah. All right, so uh, he, going on, he says, No human being with the deliberate goal of maximizing their allele's inclusive genetic fitness, genetic fitness would ever eat a cookie unless they were starving. But individual organisms are best thought of, uh, thought of as adaptation executors, not fitness maximizers. Where do taste bud come from? Not from an intelligent designer visualizing their consequences, but from a frozen history of ancestry. Adam liked sugar and ate an apple and reproduced. Uh, but the objective consequence of this is that in the modern first world, uh, the desire to eat more chocolate, uh, the plan to eat more chocolate, eating more chocolate leads to getting fat, leads to getting fewer dates, which leads to reproducing less successfully because we're not maximizing our fitness. We're executing adaptations from the past. And the funny thing is that People crave chocolate because in its natural form, cacao, like I actually just eat raw cacao nibs and they are considered a superfood. So if you ran into a cacao pod in the ancestral environment, it would have been like just tons of nutrients, a bit of caffeine, theobromide, like, but then we like as a society came along and we're like, but what if we added milk and sugar to this? Mm -hmm. And then what if we just took the cacao out of it entirely and made it a chocolate flavored candy yeah i tried cacao nibs after that episode of brooklyn 99 and they're disgusting i love them but i also like bitter weird things so yeah i remember the funny thing about super stimuli food yeah and i remember i don't remember if it was a shower thought on reddit or if it was like a pic- picture of a tweet but it was like you know the av- like the average nacho cheese dorito contains more explosive nacho cheese flavor than a king could have ever enjoyed in his lifetime i saw that post too it was like and i think that's true right it must be i think it was an explosive nacho cheese flavor 300 years ago well yeah i think it was specifically saying that like one single dorito contains more spices than like 
the average English peasant in I forget whatever century would have ever experienced in their life. Oh, like, really? So okay. you you got, you got like a real version of that kind of thought. This was just a funny, stupid one about like nacho cheese flavor. Yeah, I to, to riff off your um, bitter weird things. I only like bitter weird things when they're hot people. Yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> well, I have that one too. So okay, <laughs> alrighty. But yeah, that was that was it's short, sweet, and you know sticks in your head. Uh, the next one is evolutionary psychology, which, uh, again, the, the should have had Wes on here for this. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it starts out. Still can. No, it's a little late for that. This well, point. not for this one, but yeah. if uh, the listeners are interested in hearing us like argue with Wes about whether or not evolutionary psychology is valid, like let us know in the Discord slash Reddit slash other if places that, where you can leave comments. Especially if we have an EvoPsych expert. If, that would be cool. It would. And if nothing else, it would be fun for us, which, you know, I'm always for doing things that are fun for me. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it starts out, the phrase reproductive organ is redundant. All organs are reproductive organs. Where do birds' wings come from? An evolutionary evolution of birds, fairy who thinks that flying is really neat? The birds' wings are there because they contributed to the birds' ancestral reproduction. And this observation also holds true of the brain the most complex organ known to biology. Some brain organs are directly reproductive, like lust. Others are indirectly reproductive, like anger. Yes. He just used the C word. Well, one of the C words. Which complex. One? Oh. Uh, complexity. Yeah. Well, but he's not saying complexity is the answer. He's just saying this organ is complex, which I think is, you know, yeah. obviously true. I just, it doesn't give me much, I, I nitpicking for no reason. I like the, um, so... Before, like, the Evo Psych part of this, I like just the, um, this was a lot of stuff that I became exposed to during, like, the, the New Atheism days and uh, all the talk of whatever, intelligent design, blind watchmaker, et cetera, et cetera. Oh, yeah, one of their, like, big talking points for a while was that biology is just infinitely complex. So complex that it must have been designed, and there's no way we could ever possibly understand it, which means that a god must have done it. Right, what use is half an eye? Mm-hmm. And, like, they didn't understand that. Evolution. Turns out pretty useful. Hmm? Turns out turns pretty out, useful. Yeah, like, it turns having out, yeah. like <laughs> evolution one one hundredth of an eye is better than having zero eyes. That's right. And evolution in reverse isn't best simulated by like taking an existing eyeball and cutting it in half. Right. <laughs> so you think of like what use is it to have vague photoreceptor uh, yeah, photoreceptors. Well, kind of helpful if you see a shadow move over you and you're some stupid organism that just you know, knows to flee at that, right? Twitch when the lighting changes. I wouldn't yeah. call that a stupid organism. That's the one that survived and reproduced, probably. I mean, stupid compared to Steven. Yeah. And, <laughs> and you know. Ooh, that was a little mean. <laughs> no, that was mean to the organism. Stupid Steven's compared really smart. to Steven, or, yeah. Okay, yeah. then I just sort of heard that in reverse in my head and was like, whoa, that's oh, not a character. Oh, I, I, I heard it in reverse, too, and still agreed with it. So oh, I, don't, I, don't, I don't know what this says about me and the stupid organism. <laughs> Am I the super organism all along? Back on the <laughs> topic. Oh man, that sorry. Just aside, that reminds me of people that would like write into Slate Star Codex, being really worried that their IQ wasn't high enough. Mm. And I did a bunch of statistics on it, and it seems like it's just like friend. You did please statistics read what you just on wrote. something. Yeah, <laughs> the fact that you read this blog and know enough to be worried about this means that you're probably good. But you were going to say something about uh, reproductive biology and the new atheism wars. That was basically just it about, um, because he's talking about like where do wings come from and stuff and like having half a wing is kind of like, um, whatever, like flying squirrels, right? Mm -hmm. Penguins. Yeah. Well, penguins. They use them to swim. Yeah. They've got, that's, that. I guess I was just thinking of like when you're, when you're thinking about like flying, I can Mm -hmm. imagine in, you know, 2 million years squirrels that can fly by flapping their, their appendages. Right. 
Mm, um, bats? It'd be weird. Well, I'm just thinking like existing <laughs> flying squirrels, give yeah. them 2 million years of accelerated evolution, and then see what they look like. That's how wings came to be, right? Mm-hmm. Turns out gliding is useful, and then gliding is part of flying. So, Saw the, um, a, I guess not new at this point, but it was new to me a few years ago, um, idea that uh, wings helped with running too. And so a lot of the original use of wings could have been just to aid in fleeing from predators. Like increasing, just like running and flapping your arms yeah, increases so. your momentum Apparently. or lets you like leap Maybe longer. your control too. Hmm. Like if you can raise one arm up for draft and take a hard left turn or something, right? Mm-hmm. I suppose. Yeah. Uh, ostriches are dangerous and they can go at high speeds, so. Ostriches are descendants of like the biggest predator after the Tyrannosaurus Rex, the terror bird. Cool. And cassowaries. They're fierce. Right. Birds are dinosaurs. Yes. All right. So uh, he um, continues on to say <laughs> <laughs> that um, the neural architecture or the neural circuitry of anger is a reproductive organ as surely as your liver. Anger exists in Homo sapiens because angry ancestors had more kids. And this goes back to the uh, previous two episodes that we were talking about with evolution, that if it exists in you, it exists because it led to your ancestors having more kids. There's no other way it could have gotten there, italicized. But hold on. Are you saying that when I'm angry, I'm subconsciously trying to have children? That's not what I'm thinking about after someone punches me in the face. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you think you're not thinking that, but you are. (laughs) No, his answer is no, no, bold, no, uh, all caps, no, with an exclamation point. The cause of an adaptation, the shape of an adaptation, and the consequence of an adaptation are all separate things. This will tie in nicely to today's episode, actually. That usually ends up happening by accident, and that's kind of cool. Could it just be that all the sequences apply pretty well to most things? Perhaps. <laughs> Could be. Or, you know, we're rationalists, so we'd like things that are kind of interesting in this domain. Yeah. 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 The a- human brain, in addition to being an artifact historically produced by evolution... Is also a mind capable of bearing its own intentions, purposes, desires, goals, and plans. Cognitive causes are ontologically distinct from evolutionary causes. They're made out of a different kind of stuff. Cognitive causes are made of neurons. Evolutionary causes are made of ancestors. Yeah, and so therefore the cognitive cause of your anger is something that's happened in front of you that makes you feel angry and therefore you take a certain action. But the evolutionary cause of why you have that circuitry is because people who had that happen to them and trigger, you know, violence or whatever it is that their anger triggers, motivation to do something about it, uh, had more children. And so that is that is a different cause in ontological sense than, you know, seeing something and having your neurons process it as outrageous. Yeah, and I like like to think of this as like taking anger as an example. Uh it's there for a reason and the reason is like a bunch of like, you can just keep saying that there's a reason beneath that reason. So it's not like, I don't know, when I first encountered the idea that, like, humans do art and dance and poetry and philosophy to get laid, and I was just like, no, that makes <laughs> everything meaningless. Mm. And, like, first of all, no, like, we, just because it's there for a reason doesn't mean that we can't value it for its own sake. In fact, as a species, we clearly value things more than just reproducing like we invented condoms and birth control for like <laughs> i think he actually yeah so we can do more you know art and dance and music yeah. so and but also like anger is there because someone punched you in the face and that could be like needing to be able to get angry enough to defend yourself will let you survive and slash or like protect your friends and loved ones 
or it like creates greater social cohesion if people can't get away with going around punching people in the face with because they know that people are going to punch them back so it makes us have more coherent societies and which leads to you people having more children (laughs) so and as a reminder it is an adaptation execution not necessarily a fixed fitness maximization so even though it may have been um adaptive in the past it may not be adaptive anymore to be violent and or angry or whatever so yeah we're probably miscalibrated in like 2021 for how angry we should be at each other yeah road rage (laughs) for example yes anger may be far less uh adaptive now than it was in the ancestral environment and as an example of that he takes stalin (laughs) somewhere in stalin's brain there were neural neural circuits that rewarded pleasurably the exercise of power and circuits that detected anticipations of increases and decreases in power if there were nothing in stalin's brain that correlated to power no little light that went on for political command and off for political weakness then how would stalin's brain have known to be corrupted by power and this was during commenting on the whole, you know, power corrupts people thing. Like, how would how would brains know to be corrupted by power if if it didn't have that sort of? Uh, Apparently, being corrupted by power is good for reproductive fitness. Can Genghis be. Khan. But yeah, right. But certainly not a uh, a thing that we want to encourage anymore. At least in the evil dictator way, like wanting power, becoming a really great politician, and getting lots of notoriety for like being. A, the best president ever <laughs> I mean, is not something that I think we'd want to discourage. I think we can all agree that being corrupted by power by being the best podcasters is definitely a thing we want to encourage. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, I wanted to try to do maniacal laugh. <laughs> okay, but I was going to say, but like, Ideash is probably better at that than me. Thank you. Sure. Um, you don't you don't really get good at it until you sit at home alone and practice, and then you feel <laughs> just as crazy as possible. You got to do it in front of a mirror. Yeah, yeah. I feel like that actually probably would be fun, like for increasing like self esteem to just sort of like practice evil laughter. Yeah, and maniacally laugh on the drive home. It'll be really funny. Life hack, guys. Yeah. Uh, yeah. What are we reading next time? Next week, next time we will be talking <laughs> about protein reinforcement and DNA consequentialism, and thou art God Shatter. Yeah, I already read those because I thought those were the ones we were doing today. Whoops. <laughs> cool. I lately have been running into planning a fallacy, like accidentally helping me out, like mm. accidentally doing it too well. And that's been kind of cool. Last night I sat, sat down to uh, read the two sequence posts and our main subject post. And I saw I had already read and taken notes on all the sequences. And I was like, <laughs> sweet. I only have to do half the work now. <laughs> Fist bump your past self. That's right. Well, Always looking out for future me. It's the way to go. Because future me is going to be real me soon. <laughs> Anyways, on to our main subject today, which is a less wrong post by not Eliezer, because it was in the uh, future, I guess, our past, but the future of the sequences we're reading. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, it was opened up for two other people to post things on it. Uh, this one was by Nate Soros. 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 Actually, fun thing. I, I think I remember when Eliezer was on Sam Harris's podcast. Harris asked him, is that the correct pronunciation? And he's like, as far as I know. So. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Nobody knows. It's the same guy who did the Replacing Guilt. Yeah, uh, I was just going to say that. Neat stories of Replacing Guilt fame. Mm-hmm. Which I got a tremendous amount of value out of. Mm-hmm. I, I can't re- wait when... to reread that because I did too, but I also have forgotten a lot of it. <laughs> you don't have to reread it because Jean-Luca or, yeah. Petruda, no. I don't know how to, I'm mispronouncing his last name. Uh, Jean Jean Luca wrote a right, yeah, no last names. Um, 
did an audiobook. It's yeah. available on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. It was still it's updating re- when I found out about it. There were like two or three episodes, but uh, I should check back because I'm sure there's more now. It's, it's been done for a while, and he actually released a just full transcript or like a combined episode of all of it. So if you want to listen to them all in one gigantic episode, you can do that or do one at a time. Glorious. Strong recommend. He did a great job reading them, and I really enjoyed that way of consuming them as well. Yeah, yeah. let's cool. try to remember to shove a link in our links that we do can do on these podcasts excellent because i bet a lot of other people would get a ton of value out of that yeah so he posted it on less wrong he also has his own blog minding our way which is where he originally did replacing guilt at right yeah it was a series of blog posts but it's been collated into kind of a its own little thing but we already did an episode on replacing guilt which we should also link to but this time back by popular demand newcomb like problems are the norm yeah so uh it this is this is great this is one of the things i love about rationalists is that we get wrapped up in things like uh newcomb's uh problem and we decided to come back to it because this was i thought really interesting and kind of touched on steven's point of like how is this remotely applicable to the real world in any way it the, in the opening paragraph uh, you sent this and you're like what do you think about this for the next episode and i'm like this exactly addresses my complaint yeah. so there's fewer real world examples than i would have liked but i'm sure we'll explore the ones that are given and extrapolate on them so okay great and po- hopefully this will be the last time we touch on newcomb problems for a while because it's nice to change up our subjects uh, over time but uh yes this post is called newcomb like problems are the norm where he argues that Newcomb-like problems are the norm. What? (laughs) (laughs) Most problems that humans face in real life are Newcomb-like. What a good word. Yes. Uh, He says that specifically the Newcomb problem, it's uh, problems like that with perfect mind readers are the domain where these problems are easiest to see. However, they arise naturally whenever an agent is in a situation where others have knowledge about its decision process via some mechanism that is not under its direct control. It's always so smart because I was sort of also, I think, where Stephen was about, okay, I, I, I'm enjoying arguing slash like mentally masturbating about this thing, but also I think it's kind of silly and never going to really affect me that much. And in this first paragraph, I was just like, oh, oh, okay. Yeah, I mentally got <laughs> off on the previous conversations as well, but it's nice to, you know, ground it. So here we are. Yeah. And just because that was a lot of jargon, an agent is like a person. And uh, when others have knowledge of your decision process, that's, you know, just others know how you're going to make decisions uh, via some mechanism that's not under that agent's control. You know, some mechanisms that are not under your control. There's a lot deeper that we could get into things like game theory and decision theory. But yeah, uh, let's yeah maybe try to define terms as we come to them that's a good idea or else we'd be talking about that forever he starts out with uh a, another toy problem a easy simple one where you can see the the thing starkly the mirror token trade uh talking about a causal decision causal decision theory agent uh agents uh the the mirror token trade is uh you have a token you can give it to the person across from you if you do it'll be doubled so they'll get two uh, they are given the same the same uh, choice, so that if you both trade your tokens, you both get two. But if the other person trades their token and you hold on to yours, you get three, and they get zero. Um, the agent bond, the 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 causal decision theory agent would think thusly: uh, agents spawned either agents that are spawned from my template give their tokens away, or they keep their tokens. 
If agents spawn from my template give their tokens away, then I better keep mine so I can take advantage of the opponent, thus having three. If, instead, agents spawn from my template keep their tokens, then I had better keep mine, otherwise I won't get any money at all. Uh, and <laughs> the do we all see what the problem with this thinking is? Go ahead and spell it out. I mean, uh, I think it just yeah explains it in the next paragraph anyway, but I'm so, not sure if you wanted us to try to guess, because I'm anchoring on what Nate said since I already read it. Oh, okay. I mean, again, to me, just broadly, mm-hmm. agent spawned from my template. Like, this is... We're, we're outside reality and we're back in mental masturbation mode, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. That's, that's to me, that's been the hang-up the whole time with these problems. Okay, so you didn't even want to bother with that one? No, no, let's keep oh. going with it. But well, uh, uh, it's... Because there's more to discover here, but, I mean, keep keep rolling. This reminds okay, me, though, well, of um, the... What is that, like game theoretic thing where there are different types of players and you put them on a matrix i'm are we talking about the um the prisoner's dilemma robots uh i think yeah i think that was the one it kind of makes me think of that where it's a very I, one problem. of the sort of failure modes of decision theory was assuming that humans behave rationally and in fact when you study actual humans they do things for weird reasons you couldn't anticipate like we're not actually utility maximizers uh but I, I want to plant a flag in that, that they behave irrationally and that they're doing things for weird reasons. Well, uh, but irrationally, as far as like game theory is, or like math is based, it's definitely not irrational. Like a lot of people are, you know, if you have the game where you ha- are given $10 and then you have to choose how much to give to the other person, and then there's some other things, uh, it turns out people aren't trying to maximize the amount of money they get all the time. Sometimes they're trying to... You know, if they're in a culture that values sharing, they'll try to make sure that, like, they give the other person a fair deal. Or if they're in a culture that values, like, humbleness and giving, they'll give the other person all of the money. <laughs> exactly. Uh, there, there was another Nukem problem that somebody in the Discord tried to help illustrate the point with me. And that was Parfit's Hitchhiker, mm-hmm. where I'm in the desert, I'm out of water, and I'm dying. And some asshole drives up and says, oh, I can see that you're dying. I'll take you to town if and only if you agree to give me $1,000 when we get there. Mm-hmm. And I'm an expert micro expression reader so if i detect that you're lying i'll leave you here in the desert mm-hmm. so you have to say yes it'll give me a thousand dollars and mean it and i would pay the guy a thousand dollars when i got there even though the this is the how it's like a newcomb problem once i get to town why would i want to pay him i'm already to town i can get all the water i need right yeah i would agree to pay him for all kinds of reasons Probably aside you don't want to die well well so aside from like his ability to predict and all that stuff I'd pay him a maybe out of gratitude. I feel like a thousand dollars is a pretty high amount to charge somebody to save their life when it costs you nothing. But um, costs him probably some gas and maybe damage on his car if he's driving around in a desert. If he was already going through the desert <laughs> and he's already going to town, I'm just being yeah. A, so I mean, a I, I you know, don't but worry about it. no, no, it, but like the the kind of guy who would charge me a thousand dollars seems like the kind of psychopath who would kill me if I didn't pay him when we got to town. <laughs> so like, a I'd pay pay them if it was a reasonable amount of money out of hey, thank you, I really appreciate it. Well, what's reasonable um, depends on how much money you have. That too, you know, if I don't There's have a thousand dollars, then you know, again, but so it's. I bring this up because there are all kinds of good reasons to pay this guy. The more grounded the example, the more good reasons I can think of to do the thing that sounds quote unquote irrational if I'm a perfect homo economicus, right? Who no one is, except for maybe a few freaks. Economics majors, just kidding. So you're saying Sorry, David. the rational choice is to give him the thousand dollars anyway? Yeah. Okay. Because I, I, I think that there are lots of other good reasons. You know, I don't want my reputation to go out there as a liar, etc. Maybe it's, you know, 
problems on Earth in real life aren't so constrained as like picture a perfectly spherical prisoner's dilemma in a box, right? Okay. So it's uh, I, I, I again, this is a weird person. They might kill me if I don't give them a thousand dollars because who charges a thousand dollars to to drive? You know, let someone sit in the bed of your truck while they are going to town. Maybe um, by paying them the thousand dollars, though, you are promoting a norm of the, such mercenary behavior. Or like, maybe I, you're promoting a norm where people give the person a thousand dollars, get their life saved, and the consequence is that more people live. If and it would encourage people incentivized to, to save lives. If, we, if it would encourage people to randomly drive through the desert looking for <laughs> dying people, then maybe. I I had a friend I remember who I I say I, I hope was not in this situation. No, no, but he came from the East Coast, which I only say because I have this prejudice in my head of people from the East Coast as being kind of abrasive and prickish. It's true, but maybe for good reason because it sounds like the East Coast is a place where you need to be that way to survive, which is why I don't want everyone to live there. But anyways, uh, he uh, he I don't remember how this conversation came up, but it was something about like sharing donuts at the office or something. He was like, "Yeah, if someone brought in a dozen donuts and offered me half a donut, I'd be like, fuck you." I don't want your half a donut. Like, offer me at least offer me a whole fucking donut, you know? <laughs> and I was like, but but you get a free half donut as opposed to zero donuts. He's like, no, fuck that guy being an asshole. Give me half a donut. And I was like, huh? Okay, well, all right. But that was that was very much that same sort of thing. I think the um, it was an ultimatum game analog where he was like, you you have given me too little. I would rather have nothing than encourage this sort of possible behavior. In the future. Yeah, I noticed That's I weird. only brought up uh, examples of positive, or I guess like what I am sort of morally saying is like positive behaviors like sharing or humbleness, giving, but also it's pretty uh, much been shown that there's a point to which even in like the kindest cultures, people will defect in order to punish the other person for what they consider to be bad behavior. Right. And that that promotes a culture where people don't just get to get away with bad behavior. Or more donuts Possibly. for me. I mean, <laughs> if it's an office that has 24 people and I buy a dozen donuts out of the goodness of my heart hmm. and everyone gets half a donut if they want one, then it's weird for this guy to be, no, I want a whole one. Well, you I, you don't have to have anything. I brought this for you if you want it, but I'm you not, don't get any more than anyone else. Sounds like that guy I, I, had I, other stuff going on. Also, there was definitely not that two dozen people in the, uh, in the office. Was it a lot more or a lot less? A lot less. Oh, so someone had like a dozen donuts at their desk. And they're like, I'm going to go through all of these or most of these today, but I'll hand out dribs and drabs to people as I see fit. I guess. I don't know. Yeah. So again, I, I don't remember the, the, the specifics. The, the more we constrain this, the, the more abs- absurd it sounds, which is sort of <laughs> my thing with a lot of thought experiments. But yeah. let's, let's push I, on. When you well, so brought getting... that up, it kind of makes me think, oh, if it's their donuts, they bought to eat themselves and they're offering you half of one that like doesn't, I don't know. What, why is that a snub? It's their, their donuts. You know, this is one of those things that could divide an entire office and lead to bloodshed. <laughs> You know, depending on you know which side you come down on this. If like, no, you idiot, take half the donut. If Inyosh offered me ten bucks and Bill sugars. Gates offered me ten bucks and it was for free, you know, for no reason, I would, you know, assuming I wanted ten dollars, I'd happily take it from either of them. Right. Even though Bill Gates could give me a lot more than ten dollars, it's like, what do I care? It's ten bucks, right. right? Why would why would I say no? It's like, no, you're Bill Gates. You should give me a thousand. I think people actually behave that way, though. Like, I mean, there's I some people he... that absolutely just hate. Like, I know Jeff Bezos in particular, but like Elon I was Musk, about to say, even Bill Gates. I just saw a couple days ago uh, someone sharing this meme about uh, one of those unpopular billionaires who donated fifty million to build something or another, and they're like, given "50 more. million? Yeah, fuck his fifty million. Take the rest of his money." I was like, "Jesus, okay." You might be thinking of Mark Zuckerberg, who gave the largest hospital donation ever. I think of seventy-five million. 
Uh, and people I, crunched the numbers about how much of that wealth it equals and how much more he could have given, and therefore he's a bad person. Or just like, you know, why didn't you give more? And it's yeah. like, well, I already gave more than anyone else ever has to a hospital. <laughs> like, I, it, I don't know. It, it, I, I get where they're coming from, but not in the donut case. Anyway, where are we at with the... Uh, with the well, the I, okay. So neither of you answered this, but I will answer my thing. As soon as I read it, I was like, "This agent is completely fucking brain dead." What is their issue? Because uh, the agent, if it had even two IQ points, would immediately see that both agents are made from the same template. And so when you make a choice, you're making choice for both of you because whatever you do is what agents made from that template do. And the agents know that, right? Well, yeah. It says agents spawned from my template will, and then, and then you know extrapolates and somehow comes to the idea that he should keep his or it should keep its token because that way it will have either one or three when the correct answer is you're going to have one because the other guy is a mirror copy of you he's going to do the same thing whereas if you give yours away the other guy's having the exact same reasoning you're going to have two this is why like prisoners this is a prisoner's dilemma problem very very close yeah Yeah. except no one's going to jail they're just losing money Mm -hmm. but it's like if if me and my identical copy broke into a bank or robbed it and the cops catch us and they can't prove the bank robbery unless one of us snitches, but they can get us on conspiracy to commit bank robbery mm-hmm. um, if we both keep our mouths shut, like, I know me and I would say, no, I'm not going to tell. I'd rather serve the, the two months for conspiracy to commit crime rather than the six years for conspiracy or committing the crime, right? Yeah. So, A, the, I mean, th- this is the kind of thing where... If you're de- dealing with like agents that are identical, it doesn't seem to even be a real problem. Yeah, well, there, there I can see the irrationality. Yeah, that's yeah. the thing. But according to causal decision theory, they, he should keep its token because what he decides cannot change what the other person is going to decide. So I suppose, and th- it, I guess it should be pointed out too that this post isn't just about like Newcomb problems and their reasonableness and their applicability applicability to real life. It's about how Newcomb-like problems present issues for causal decision theory in particular yes but there are other decision theories that make this less of a problem right it's 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 specifically advocating for other decision theories but causal decision theories are the ones that say you should one box in new one box in newcomb's problem and one box in uh, the clear newcomb's problem and all those other things because what has happened in the past cannot influence or what you're doing now cannot influence what happened in the past i found a good framing of newcomb's problem like the the box the original Newcomb problem Mm. that i liked i mean and this is like an an empiric decision theory rather than a causal one if i'm presented with the initial dilemma which box or boxes do i take Mm. uh i'm basically asking myself which group do i want to be in the group that got one thousand dollars or the group that that got a million dollars historically 99.9998 percent of people who took the one box became millionaires Mm. i'd rather be in that group Mm. so Based on the evidence of the that I've accrued thus far, yeah. based, you know the historical data, yeah. I will one box. Right? right. So that that is. But you said you wouldn't one box if it was clear. But if I could see the contents of it. Yeah, and it was empty. Uh, if it was, if I could see that it was empty, um, this that is also my my empiric decision theory says let's go on the data I have, which is I can see an empty box. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So I, I think I'm being consistent. Okay. Yeah, I think that that problem. The, the original Newcomb problem and even the sort of iteration of it. Yeah, the the first two iterations of the Newcomb problem sort of don't worry me or uh, feel very applicable to my life. But the, like, what they bring up in this about 
the concept of you have to make some decision based on what somebody else is going to do and you don't have perfect information like if if in like so if it's not an identical copy of you and you can't predict what this other person is going to do and like then there's like real sort of consequences and it is more interesting for me to think about because there's a lot more going on maybe that's just sort of my like being more interested in psychology than math bias yeah showing yeah it's it's so i guess we're getting back into the original newcombs which was what we were trying to avoid because we're talking about newcomb like problems but the point he makes is that uh as humans we have we're all kind of like you know half omegas mini omegas we have an impressive array of social machinery available to us that gives us gut level subconscious impressions of how trustworthy other people are uh, and so, Unless we are autistic and lacking that ability, <laughs> and then we have to kind of learn it on manual. But hopefully, you have learned it on manual over time somehow. I think I've, in some, a bit of a tangent. Uh, in some domains, I think I'm actually better than a neurotypical person because I had to actually learn this thing from the ground up and practice it a bunch. Whereas, if like you're just born with social skills and like the ability to like read body language, tone of voice, facial expressions, you don't usually have an incentive to try to get better at it. Mm. <laughs> Yeah, but uh, that was a tangent. Okay, um, yeah. So, so that is uh, uh, he gives several examples of Newcomb-like program uh, problems where when he's pitching a a project to some of his supervisors, he changes how he super uh, how he pitches it to other supervisors based on what he thinks of their psychology and what they're most likely to be interested in and what's most likely to get the oh go go ahead from them. Those are examples that I like. Okay, that's real life. Yes. Yeah. Because you're predicting how other people are going to react based on what you know about them. Yep. And uh, he, yeah, he, he says, sure, to those tools can be fooled. First impressions are wrong. Con men seem trustworthy. Uh, shy people can seem untrustworthy. But all of the data is at least correlated with the truth. I'm not sure that it's true that first impressions are often wrong. My understanding was that people actually tend to have pretty good instincts and first impressions tend to usually be pretty accurate often doesn't doesn't necessarily mean majority it just means not crazy rare maybe i really wish you wouldn't have used the word often because that means very different things to very different people yeah okay first uh, impressions can be wrong we will I, we will yeah, uh, yeah. we'll update yeah, this text okay. for him well, let, let's not tangent again <laughs> even though i really want to because it's interesting ah, okay humans have a natural tendency to avoid non-newcom like scenarios i thought that was the one of the most interesting points here that like we actually want newcom like scenarios and we avoid the non newcom like ones uh human social structures use complex reputation systems humans seldom make big choices among themselves who to hire whether to become roommates whether to make a business deal before in scare quotes getting to know each other uh we automatically build complex social models detailing how we think our friends family and co-workers make decisions Yes. And importantly, we constantly leak information about how we make decisions, and others are constantly using this information. Human decision situations are Newcomb-like by default. It's the non-Newcomb problems that are simplifications and edge cases. Um, well, at least as far as, yeah, humans trying to predict other humans. Yes. Uh, I, yeah, human decision situations that involve, like, trying to coordinate with other people. I was wondering about this. The, the earlier the earlier paragraph where he says humans seldom make big choices like who to hire, whether to become roommates, whether to make a business deal before getting to know each other. Do you guys like Absolutely he wrote this just true. a few years ago? You think that's true? Yeah. Uh, I mean, I've seen it in action. Uh, I've seen the failure mode of it in action where 
I had a boss that would hire anybody who like he would go out for beers with and have a good time with, whether or not they were qualified for the job. <laughs> well, the going out and getting the beer is the getting to know part. Yeah, it's sort of like, you know, the people voting for the president they'd want to have a beer with. Mm -hmm. uh, being more willing to want to hire a contractor that you've like used before or your friend that you know is a contractor rather than some stranger on the internet, even if it, they have like good reviews and lower price. Well, I'm very willing to work with people that I've already worked with because they are, you know, a because known... Because you got to know them. Not just because I got to know them, but because I haven't had bad experience with them so far. If they offered me something and delivered it, I at least know that they are trustworthy enough to do that. Whereas a new person, maybe they're great, but I don't know that yet. And I don't necessarily want to take that risk. Yeah, I think that's the exact thing that they're talking about, where getting to know someone means like, okay, I have an idea of what level of quality I can expect from this person's work, that they will show up on time, and that they haven't screwed me over. Whereas this other guy on Thumbtack or whatever uh, is pitching less, has good reviews, but I've never met this asshole. What if I hire him and he like does shit work or doesn't show up or shows up drunk? Is this why they still have job interviews? Probably. I think I think people value that like face to face can we converse with this person will they fit in with the company culture do they have weird hygiene issues like all that yeah cuz everything that I've heard is like interviews don't tell you shit for information don't even bother with them just look at the resumes and their portfolio of past work and that kind of stuff and yet constantly people keep doing interviews and making hiring decisions based off those interviews and it never has good results is what I'd heard but uh Really? Because I feel like, I mean, I've been in the position of having to review applications and help choose employees at a couple of different places I worked. And I mean, it's like considered standard resume advice to talk yourself up and like make yourself as marketable as possible. So it's very hard to get an impression of like how qualified a person is, whether they'd be the right person for the job just by reading like their you know billboard that's like reasons you should hire me i i can do computational thinking i have taken these courses you know like maybe i'm just really terrible at reading people because i have found that interviews with prospective tenants i my impressions have no correlation to how they actually turn out to be as tenants but just looking at raw things like uh their their income their credit score uh their their uh references that actually like is much more predictive. Like, honestly, they, I don't even need to, shouldn't need to meet people, I don't think. But if they showed up 45 minutes late and they're jacked on skag, you might be like, okay, maybe <laughs> they're not the best tenant, right? Sure, yeah. So I think, I think I vaguely recall the stuff you're talking about with interviews where people overestimate the confidence that they get of like an in-person interview and the character judgment or whatever, right? Mm -hmm. But going on resume alone, I think depending on the type of job, but if it's going to be a job where you're working in tandem with other people or like on a team, I think a at least brief interview is uh essential you know if they show up and they are whatever they've got swastika tattoos on their face you might not like care if they're really good at the job you'd rather take somebody who's a little less good at the job that you would that you could it's not that going to scare off all your customers and that you're capable of getting along with and stuff right yeah so yeah so, some getting to know you level sounds super valuable and that's because they're leaking all kinds of information about the kind of person they are when you talk to them right and you can totally lie on a resume yeah, that too. I mean, you could catch the person in it, but like, there's some things that it's hard to background check. When you were talking about tenants, like, you can in fact run a credit score on them and see how much money, like, you know, check their pay stubs, 
have they been stably employed, et cetera, et cetera. But mm-hmm. like resumes aren't really the same kind of data. They're just what the person thinks they're good at, okay. which sometimes is not the case. I remember that there was a resume for a person that we ended up hiring and then had to fire because like, among other reasons, one of the things they had on their resume was like, I have like good computer skills, basically phrased more formally and probably copy pasted from some resume advice thing. And it turned out that in fact, they did not, they could sort of barely use word suite, you know, like word PowerPoint. Oh, uh, okay. Microsoft they, suite. They couldn't, they couldn't figure out spreadsheets at all and oh, like couldn't really even use the internet properly. And it was just like, I could just kept laughing about, I wish I could remember the phrase they had used on their resume because it was just like phrased. So self-aggrandizingly and then the person showed up and they were like how do i open a tab i want to open another when you want a window but there's another window Hmm. where's the thing where are you and i was just head palming (laughs) oh man you're not gonna last too long whoops (laughs) so okay maybe maybe i'm just again the outlier and that i don't know how to model other humans and i'm bad at that uh i think you probably i mean i'd have to see you and I'd have to observe you in your natural environment, you know, doing stuff, but you don't get a vibe walking down the street if somebody's swinging a stick and yelling at nothing that, like, oh, I should cross the street, you know, like it's, ex- I don't think I've ever actually ran into that issue. Like, sure, that is obvious, but you know, more generally, just the average person that you see never twigs anything for me and I can't figure anything out one way or another. I don't get gut feelings about people generally. I don't think that's true. It seems like well, that's you are true. a person who can, like... I, I've had conversations with you about other people where you seem to be able to kind of internally model this person, at least to some extent. I think, okay, what I mean to say is my gut feeling about everybody initially is this is a great person. That's period, right. always. I kind of like that. That's but how that I try to But that doesn't run. work. Sometimes it ends up in bad consequences. Like, you update when you get data and stuff, but I always try to trust until given... Yeah. Given reason not to. Now that might be a bad uh, heuristic. No, I but... think uh, actually in game theoretic terms, the best social strategy is tit for tat or tit for two tats. Like, screw me over once or like, if, I'll forgive you the first time, but the second time, no no more cooperation uh, seems to be like the, the one that wins in most uh, of the Matrix things that i can't remember the name of oh good my impulse to kindness is uh borne out by nerds excellent <laughs> by nerd models by math <laughs> okay so um what we were talking about here yes newcomb like scenarios so this is the big bolded thing that i pulled out uh that i thought was probably the most interesting overall point here that showed up about halfway through the article newcomb like scenarios simply don't feel like decision problems people present ideas to us in specific ways depending upon their model and most of us don't fret about how others would have presented us with different opportunities if we had acted in different ways. And he gave the example of uh, pitching things to his bosses. I think a probably more common example everyone is familiar with is ask, you know, weighing whether or not to ask someone out. You partially base your decision on if you know anything about them, what you think they're likely to say. If you think that there's a good chance they're going to say no, you don't even bother because you don't want to like make things awkward and, and be shut shut down like that because it you know kind of painful i think a lot of people are poorly calibrated about that i I agree actually people should probably ask each other out more because it really isn't that big a deal but continuing on in the fact that uh, people do try to model you and make their decisions based on that you are you you just are never presented uh 
the thing in the first place. The person just doesn't come out and ask you out. So you don't realize that it was a decision problem. And I think um, that very much ties back to the original Nukem problem because you aren't ever presented the the box with a million dollars in it because Nukem, you know, predicted you and thought that you wouldn't take uh, it. Omega. Or Omega, sorry. Predicted you and thought that you would Yeah. <laughs> Nukem pre- predicted you and thought you wouldn't accept his date. So that's why he didn't ask you out. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's that's the same. I mean, that's, I think, where it all comes back down to the clear box. If Omega thinks that you're not going to take the clear box, you just never get that opportunity. And so it feels like you're making a decision based on the boxes that are in front of you. Like, I see the clear box is obviously empty, so I might as well take both and get a little bit of money. But the rub is that it's uh, you, you. it didn't feel like a decision problem because the decision was made earlier before you were presented with the boxes. You you made the decision to two box when they're clear and one is empty, and that is why it was empty. Whereas if you would have made the decision to be like, okay, even if it's clear and empty, I'm going to just one box anyway, and then you would never be presented with the clear empty box problem. You'd just be presented with a full one. And again, it wouldn't feel like a decision problem, even though it was just one step before when you think the decision is happening. Yeah, I'm the kind of person who would one box. So I'm the kind of person who, when presented with a clear box, I'd see a million dollars in it. <laughs> right? <laughs> no, because you already said that if you saw a clear empty box, you would just go ahead and take them both. So you got some money. Right. But I guess if I didn't know, I mean, this is, again, we're getting too high into the, the constrained one. thought experiment territory, but I'm imagining where... I get like a brain scan or Omega reads me before showing me the boxes. Mm-hmm. Is this a is this a one or two boxer? But yeah, let's not get stuck on that one again. Yeah, we can move through with this. Uh, where... Yeah, thought I had was we were doing uh, in Guild of the Rose the decision theory course and making decision trees, and I was reminded by this of uh, the knowledge that most people don't actually consider the full range of options before they make a choice. You kind of are like, all right, do I quit my job and get a different job or do I stay at this job? These are the only two options. And then they like agonize over that decision and they don't think about like, okay, or what if I like reached out to my boss to see if I could like switch to part time if it's like too stressful or something? Mm -hmm. Or can I like stay in the company but shift to a different position because this one's bumming me out or whatever? Mm -hmm. So, okay. The article says that those um, causal decision theories, uh, Get, fail when they get stuck in traps of no matter what I signaled, I should do the mean thing. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> which, like in the token uh, problem, is the mean thing is keeping your token, right? Uh, quote unquote mean is keeping your token. Uh, so they, you know, they're both thinking, well, no matter what the other agent does, I'm better off if I keep mine without realizing that they are leaking information that they are keeping their token by the fact that they keep the token. Um, and that results in uh, the CDT, causal decision theory agents, sending off a mean signal and missing opportunities for higher payoffs. Because when you're, you know, you're thinking, oh, I'm going to signal trustworthiness and that I'm a great person and that people, you know, can rely on me, but then still defect. Uh, you, you humans generally can't do that. They're leaky. And so even though they think they're signaling good stuff, they're still signaling the mean thing because they're going to do the mean thing. It's like Omega can predict that you would take the two boxes. So you can't signal that falsely and humans oftentimes can't signal things falsely. And because of that, they miss opportunities for higher payoffs. At least they the person can. won't if... present you with the opportunity or they won't come out and ask you out. Sorry, go ahead. Yeah, at least they can't if uh, it's not, you know, literally the first time you met this person and you have zero information. I think people can totally 
signal trustworthiness and scam you one time, but then there's the uh, tit for two tats sort of like people don't exist in a vacuum. You are able to observe their behaviors, and no matter how much they say, like I'm a super trustworthy person, I always pay my debts. But you've seen that like they have consistently failed to do this multiple times. It's like yeah, okay, now uh, you have shown your revealed preference for being a douchebag here. And again, it doesn't feel like you're making a decision because you just don't have the opportunities presented to you for the higher payoff things, which uh, which is the trap and which kind of sucks. Uh, the uh, Soros, Soros? Soros is how I say it. Soros says that, by contrast, humans tend to avoid this trap by other means. We place value on things like niceness for reputational reasons. We have intrinsic senses of honor and fairness, which alter the playoffs of the game and so on. And I think that's what you were talking about with Parfit's Hitchhiker, where you would pay him because it's the honorable thing to do. Yeah. And I think, and then my, you know, way to satisfy the people who are like, well, good is stupid or whatever. I'm like, well, the guy might, the guy's clearly insane because he's charging outrageous prices. He might kill me. So there's another pragmatic reason to do it. Yeah. But, but your yeah. main, your main justification, it seemed like was basically, it's the honorable thing to do because I said I would do it. And frankly, if, if he didn't want money, mm-hmm. I would try and offer them money. Right. Like, it's just because, hey, thanks for your help. You know, and- so. If, I wouldn't necessarily empty my savings account to give it to him, but, you know, hey, appreciate it. Here's a hundred bucks. And that's um, the thing. Like, the fact that you do have this weird sense of honor that's going to make you give him money even though you don't have to means that he will drive you back to town. Uh, you you end up winning the, the scenario. You're right. Because of this, quote-unquote, irrational sense of honor. E- well, that's why I'm glad you put uh, quote irrational in, in quotes because uh, it, it works out, right? Yeah. I, I have rules... Uh, maybe rationalist virtues or rational virtues that I try to follow. And those tend to correspond successfully with positive outcomes, right? Heuristics, one might say. Mm -hmm. Sure. Yeah. Like if Omega approaches you, go the other way. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Stop this for just one tiny second because I really got to turn on. Sorry. I had to open the door. I I had the door open, but I couldn't hear Jay's talking uh, with the, being closest to the noise. Nope, the sun just came back out anyway, so it might not even be as like cool outside as we hope it might be. I mean, I, I like the sun, but not being overheated is yeah. nice too. Yes, I like seventy-two on average. Uh, it's just keeps being interesting how different my cold and hot tolerance is on testosterone. Oh, yeah, yeah I'm like totally fine in the cold now um whereas like i used to be one of those like chronically cold people even like in the middle of summer wearing like a sweatshirt uh but be able to like hang out in 98 degree heat uh and it's the other way around like first responder fundraiser on the street just like chilling like this is fine yeah now i'm like oh my god i I hate being overheated Mm -hmm. gives me like brain fog and makes me lazy and there are only so many clothes you can take off. Yeah, right. Whereas... You can always put on more when you're cold. Yeah. yeah. So did I get the better end of the bargain? I don't know. You got a different end. Yeah, trade-offs, benefits. Yeah. Um, I don't know if any of that was on the air or not, but... Yeah. Uh, yeah. Where are we at? We are at... Uh, okay, so okay, he, yeah. he's making this point that whenever someone leaks information about their decision procedures... Uh, on a channel they do not control, like facial microexpressions or posture, cadence of voice, etc., that person is vi- inviting others to put them in Newcomb-like settings, and that is why one of the reasons why Newcomb-like problems are the norm. 
are sort of like by being a human uh i found, found the word inviting to be interesting there because i don't think it's a conscious choice but hmm. uh yeah by being a human interacting with other humans uh that this happens yeah i do um wonder if either of you have seen any data on this but this this keeps bringing up facial micro expressions and was that something that was replication crisis or not i remember there being this like huge uh i don't know news story and pop culture like latching onto the idea of micro expressions and the fact yeah. that we all pick up on them subconsciously and then like you can maybe like i don't know some freaks can naturally or you can train yourself to be able to see them and then that'll like make you a lot human lie detector and it was i have no idea how much of that is actually true it was huge for a few years and then i think it came out that it was pretty pretty highly oversold that there are some micro expressions and they can affect things a little bit but it's not nearly this massive overpowered thing that they were that it was being made out to be. There was a so-so television show called Lie to Me. Yeah, that's what I was thinking of. Where the protagonist was these one of these wizards of micro-expressions. Oh, I remember that. The yeah. two episodes I saw were great. I remembered I got annoyed with it because they did an episode out of, like, and I don't know how it makes it to the, I think, I think it was on some streaming service. So it made it to, like, the final cut, and there was episodes out of order. Huh. Like, a character that died was in the next episode. Oh. And it's like, I don't know how... You get all the way through to the point where you could just shuffle it around without any work whatsoever. It's not even like you have to reprint a book, right? Yeah. So that plus the fact that it got redundant. So, right. but like I said, I only saw two episodes. Yeah, a couple episodes was fun. It was a fun premise. Yeah, but yeah, so I, I don't think it... for episodes one through two, yeah. <laughs> one through two. <laughs> got it. It's been too long for me to remember which ones, but yeah, I think my take my impression of micro expressions is that there's probably something there but it's oversold in pop culture but posture cadence of voice i mean there are things that people do yeah and there's and a lot of other things and like you said clothing tattoos yeah, how you smell i also just because i'm a contrarian uh or devil's advocate or something want to point out that yeah i also want to point out that the book talking to strangers Ma malcolm gladwell which uh we did a whole episode on a while ago showed a bunch of examples and studies backing them up that in fact we're way worse at telling you know like getting any idea of what people are like or what they are going to do by observing them than we think we are there's a overconfidence bias that like almost everybody falls into here because we have things like uh heuristics about like what people look like when they're lying for example mm, which is yeah. Which don't actually correlate, like, it, it's, like, sort of, I don't know, pop psychology has said, like, yeah, you get people, you know. If they're sweating, they're lying. Yeah. And the thing is that, like, the person could be telling the truth, but they're very anxious because they're being interrogated. Yeah. Um, or they're just, like, a weird person who behaves in weird ways, which a lot of people are weird. <laughs> one of the reasons lie detectors are such bullshit. My favorite example of lie detector, like, the polygraph tests, is mm. that it tests, it doesn't it tells anxiety lying. basically it it yeah it d picks up the physiological signs of stress mm -hmm. which you can trigger uh and ruin the test by flexing your butthole when yeah. you're giving honest answers yeah and not doing that when you're giving false answers right. and i remembered on penn and teller's bullshit when they're describing this and then it cuts to them like in their little white room that they're you know talking at the camera at and it's like we're doing it right now and so are you because it's like you're right i just learned about this and now you know so <laughs> it, it was just really funny i always stuck with me um, yeah, on the other side of things, you could be a sociopath or just a very confident liar and totally mm -hmm. fool the test by 
not being anxious at all while you're lying. Yeah. I think that, I mean... Or maybe that's what you were just saying, but, like... I, I well, was, rather I was... than, like, using, you know, the butthole flexing <laughs> technique, which, lol. Uh... <laughs> but, yeah, I mean, I think, in general, the heuristics are reliable, which is why they're programmed in, right? We just talked about EvoPsych. Uh, in, in general, these things correlate enough to where it makes sense. You know, if you get to know somebody... And, and you're like, oh, okay, they, they nervously, you know, shift their gaze away and do all the quote unquote liar behaviors just all the time. Mm. Then you can, you can say, okay, this is an atypical case. But the vibe you pick up when people are putting them down, I think if there's anything humans are programmed for as social animals, it's kind of that, right? Yeah. We're pretty good at picking up what other people are putting down most of the time. Yeah, yeah. gut feeling uh, is actually quite well, well calibrated and it's based on Bayesian reasoning. Uh, just... On, on like a subconscious or like physiological level as an example of this nate points out that he knows at least two people who are unreliable and untrustworthy and who blame the fact that they can't hold down jobs and nobody cuts them any slack on bad luck rather than on their own demeanors both consistently <laughs> believe that they are taking the best available action whenever they act unreliably and untrustworthy both brush off the idea of becoming a sucker Neither of them is capable of acting unreliable while signaling reliability. And both of them would benefit from actually becoming trustworthy. Which... Yep, the best way to lie is to tell the truth. <laughs> in, in a Yeah, it, that's a funny way to put it, but I agree. I mean, it's this is where I'm talking about kind of like virtue rationality, right? If I want to be perceived as trustworthy, I can just be a trustworthy person. Mm -hmm. And eventually that, that will be what people are picking up from me, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Sounds like a win. Yeah. He says you can't reliably signal trustworthiness without actually being trustworthy. You can't reliably be charismatic without actually caring about people. And you can't easily signal confidence without becoming confident. I also... God. That thing. You can't reliably be charismatic without actually caring about people. This is going to be like a weird tangent. But like, I feel like I used to really care about every individual person I met and be interested in them. And like, lately that has changed and i don't know if that was the lockdown or what but like i just feel myself to be more grumpy nowadays i feel much more like a grumpy old man than i did two years ago we've all had a rough couple of years i'm i'm i think we'll bounce back any another you know in the in the not too distant future yeah you had also mentioned earlier that you tend to just when you meet new people automatically assume this is a great person so i did i did. always did but then like you know you get burned a few times and you start being grumpy <laughs> Yeah, I'm trying to pull myself out of that because, uh, or not exactly the same thing, but I have, like, anxiety patterns around, do these people really like me? Do they really want me around? They probably think that I'm an idiot and I just say dumb things all the time and they're just, like, tolerating my presence because they pity me and then I have to do all the CBT things again of, have they ever actually said or done anything that suggests that that's the way they feel? Have they, in fact, acted in the opposite way, such as saying, like, hey, you're my friend and I enjoy your company. Like, let's, you know, do a chart and then, like, stare at the data and then try to, like, lean into the data. Yeah. It's hard uh, to, you know, overcome uh, cognitive distortions. The really weird thing is that I really do feel less charismatic now. I feel like I'm less funny. I'm less enjoyable to be around. I, I liked all those things about myself before, and I want to get them back because I enjoyed being, I don't know. Feeling, like, socially competent. Yeah, feeling like people liked having me around. And and now I just don't feel that as much, and I think it's very much because of 
this grumpiness I've gotten, and I want to get over the grumpiness because, gosh, it's really, really fucking fun being able to be in a group of people and just having fun with them. For what yeah, it's and it worth, benefits everyone. From the outside, you're still fun to be around. Um, I, I have to just, I'm kind of blaming everything, you know, everything literally got worse. Food tasted worse. The weather got worse in November 2016, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and then it was bad for four years, and then we had, you know, lockdown helped ruin everything else. We ruined it. <laughs> so, like, if you're... Uh, feeling less socially competent maybe you know everyone's out of practice right mm. someone so. at the uh astral codex meetup that i was just at like said this basically what you were saying but like phrased it as cool now we're all like I- i've always been socially anxious and awkward but now everybody's on the same playing field <laughs> which like you know i keep having that same sort of thought like oh man my life is such a mess right now but at least we're all in this together everybody's kind of a mess right now like kind of a weird pessimism optimism <laughs> thing i don't know sorry did i cut you off steven no no I, that, that was the same it was a good addition there um yeah and then we're basically about done this thing uh the end is compare the advice above to our analysis of cdt uh the dis- Causal, decision, Causal theory. decision theory and the mirror token trade, where we say you can't keep your token while the opponent gives theirs away. CDT, which can't represent this argument, finds the high payoff is unavailable to it. The analogy is exact. CDT fails to represent precisely this sort of reasoning, and yet this sort of reasoning is common and useful among humans. Yeah, you can't get the benefits of being trustworthy without actually being trustworthy. Yeah, and like you can't get the benefits of showing confidence without actually becoming confident that kind of thing yeah sort of um confidence is one of those things where i think you can get better at it by faking it till you making it till you make it yeah but i still the really interesting thing is that as you fake it you do get better at being confident yeah placebomancy i hear somebody i know is working on an interesting post on that subject i'm Mm. eager to read it yay thank you for the poke i appreciate (laughs) everyone on the discord who has sent me pokes uh sorry if i haven't responded back to any of y'all but i will or i will like uh, make my best attempt despite like having lots of stuff going on love you guys so is caution and this will be some esoteric stuff that maybe someone better educated than than me can shine some light on is causal decision theory a Bayesian approach? Because I feel like an epistemic decision theory would be more Bayesian. I mean, like look, look at what's actually happening. And they yes, but causal decision is like strongly related to that because it says if something is in the past, it cannot, um, you cannot affect things in the past. There's no causality going backwards in time, and therefore that's why it fails in these certain situations. Yeah, I mean, in the sense that it updates on priors, I guess it's Bayesian. Yeah, I guess that's that's where I and honestly, I feel like any reasonable decision theory will reliably point in the same direction as other reasonable decision theories, right? Uh, like the you'll, the, you'll find you'll, consider reasonable. I think you'll find edge cases like you know mind reading Newcomb problems, <laughs> but if it's the kind where you're, I'm modeling somebody, you know, I'm pitching to my boss whatever, and I get a negative result. I'll try a different approach, right? And I'm like, oh, they really like it when I compliment their shoes first, right? Um, then I can I can ask for, you know, the moon and get it. So, hmm. like, that's the kind of thing... I mean, that seems like both... Any any decision theory would find that if you're as long as you're not just stuck. I, and maybe I should just leave decision theories out of it because I'm not a decision theorist or a mathematician. But, like, 
Well, he does spend the last few paragraphs here saying basically causal decision theory sucks and I'm going to give more arguments as to why people should not use it. <laughs> yeah, I, I saw that and was eager to read the follow-up post, but haven't yet. Um, I I don't know. I um... do, Does this somewhat address um, the whole issue about Newcomb and Omega-like predictors in the real world and how this problem does apply? That's what I was going to... That's what I was trying to articulate and... Sort of. I think so. I mean, the the situations are radically distinct, right? Um, in the situation where I'm pitching to my boss some idea um, and I want to get a result, I'm kind of more in the Omega seat than I am in the um, the person picking the options. Right. Right. Yeah. So He's the one in the person picking the option seat. Right. Yeah. So in the Newcomb problems that we've discussed previously, I'm never in the Omega seat. Mm-hmm. And so... They're different there, right? Mm-hmm. If someone comes to me and my boss finds that, oh, if I ask Stephen to do a, do something after he's had coffee, I'm much more likely to get a positive result, then he's the Omega and I'm the person not really getting to decide which box, box I'm picking. Yeah. yeah. I'm the one who, who is giving being given a box and not realizing that I had other options, right? Yeah. Um, you decided which box he would he would present you with far earlier in the past when you decided your decision, what how you make decisions in general. I feel like that's just how things work. Yeah, but I mean, that's basically what Newcomb's problem was trying to present. I think that is, yeah, the premise of this article is that we're always making decisions based on imperfect information and... And our ideas of what other people's decision processes are. Yeah, which, like, sub that for our idea of, you know, whether or not Omega is a perfect predictor and whether we think that's important. Uh, it is easier to see why... Newcomb's problem was important when you put it in terms of real world examples, which uh, I think sort of, I mean, Stephen, I think are in agreement that there are some thought experiments that it's hard to engage with in good faith when they don't, when, you know, when I think you called it like spherical Hitler in a <laughs> void. Uh, I have fun with those, but like you put it, mental masturbation is, is the way for, is the, uh, my favorite term for it. And that's fun. I like it. It's, you know, the navel gazing, philosophizing, is a fun way to pump intuitions or just have a, you know, spend an hour with, with fun conversation. But I wonder like what you actually learn about anything. If, you know, I'm trying to give you like, if you can't apply it to your life, then how is it going to be useful ever? Right. And like, if you oh, could never that's what ever they said about relativity and electricity, uh, I'm not sure that that's the same argument that I, that I think me and Steven were making. Uh, well, there's a lot I'm of times people if... say like, how can you possibly apply this to your life that later on it turns out, can apply to your life somehow oh yeah no what i'm trying to say is i think that it does apply to your life it's just hard to see it when it's presented as a god with two boxes as opposed to you have to choose these two jobs and here's what you know about both of the bosses or like the companies offering you the job but there's also this element of uncertainty yeah yeah i i mean that's something i can actually engage with as like oh yes that's like you know there are never mind uh I was going to just sort of like keep making new synonyms for like the first thing that I had said. (laughs) (laughs) No, you're good. I think that I was trying to think of like other kinds of thought experiments that you keep adding more and more constraints to try and like force the thought experiment to work. Um, A good example might be like the rebuttal to utilitarian ethics of like, well, then you should kill homeless people and harvest their organs and save lives with those organs, right? It's more of a like repugnant conclusion type thing. Well, some people might just bite the bullet, but... 
or usually thought experiments given like, look, you've got one person in the ICU who who could recover or whatever, and then you've got five people who all need five different organs, and they'll all magically ma- match this person perfectly. Mm-hmm. Um, not impossible. Okay, sure. Let's let's think about this. And then you know, well, you're a utilitarian, so you should kill the one person to save the five, right? And it's like, well, think of the externality causes though. People come to my hospital and go mysteriously missing. Yeah, it's bad for business. It's bad for public trust and health. And I'll probably go to jail. Well, no, no. Ignore all of those. And so, well, how can I ignore all of those? Those are all actual things that would actually happen, <laughs> right? So the more that you, like, try to highly constrain a thought experiment to make it, yeah. again, to try and, like, m- nail someone down on a point, and it's like, okay, yeah, sure. In this perfectly convoluted example that could never, ever happen in reality, I, I accept your conclusion. In real life, I'll do the thing that makes sense. I think that's a valid thing to say, though. Like, you, you should... A lot of people are reluctant to say in this completely, you know, bizarre thing that'll never happen. Yes, it you should kill the one person to save the five because it feels bad. Like it, it violates the moral intuitions. And I think those moral intuitions are there for good reason. Because like you said, all the other externalities that are being assumed away. But if we do assume those away, I think it would be better if people were more able to say, yeah, yeah, okay. In, in that case, sure, you're right. As opposed to, nope, you're still wrong anyway because of all these reasons that you already said do not apply here. Well, like if you, if, you're, if your goal in delivering this thought experiment is to get people to kind of just be able to train, train them how, on how to bite bullets, right? Mm-hmm. Then, that, then that sounds valuable. But if you're trying to like actually make a – like prove something, like people seem to be arguing with like the original Newcomb problem presentations. Like b- because we're not presented with mind readers or perfect brain scanners or whatever that can anticipate my future, my future behaviors mm-hmm. – um, at least yet, I there's not a lot for me to like worry about in those circumstances, in those thought experiments, right? Yeah, or learn um, from again. Yeah. Do you think? I don't know. I in my fantasy science fiction future world, <laughs> there would be a person who is untrustworthy and kind of sociopathic and terrible, but then he's presented with Newcomb's problem, and he's like, "Oh, if I want the higher payoffs, I have to become a more trustworthy person," and becomes like you know a good sociopath who is trustworthy. I think specifically because of Newcomb, but. Much like could never actually happen. I I think that you could come to that conclusion by reading this article. But if if that person was presented with like the newcomers box problem in Omega, it's hard to. I I think it's hard to come to that conclusion because it's hard to see how it applies to your life. Unless in the sci-fi future there are Omegas running around occasionally, like once a month, (laughs) grab a stranger off the street and give them this problem. (laughs) Like, so if these things were happening... Or maybe in the sci-fi future, they first read the Newcomb's Problem article, and then they read the Newcomb-like problems are the norm article. And then their eyes are opened, and they have reached enlightenment. Right. And then they're like, oh, if I want to be seen as trustworthy, I need to be a trustworthy person. Like, that almost sounds... It sounds kind of ridiculous when you say it that way. No, no, no. I, I, I meant that perfectly sincerely. Yeah. Like, that, that this... Maybe some people struggle with that. They're like, why does no one trust me? Is it And, like, it never quite occurs to them. It's like, oh, because I never return money that I say I will, and I... I whatever right like all the all these things um Nate mentioned a couple of people that he knows who in fact like have this failure mode and I also know and have fallen into these myself in the past you know where I think the example was like why am I always the victim the world is against me uh Mm -hmm. I have no motivation to want to care about anybody because they clearly don't care about me and uh Leaning into that means that you're going to see everything through that lens, which means that it's going to turn into a vicious cycle of you not trusting people, people interpreting you as not trustworthy because your behaviors are bad, and then you getting more angry at humanity and feeling like more of a victim. I think a fascinating example of this is Wes from 
the Discord and the Mindkiller podcast where he will often say things that like when you just read the words, there was one point where I was like, I want to mute this fucker and maybe kick him off my server because, oh my God, I hate his ethics. <laughs> He's always saying things like, everyone should be selfish. You should be selfish. I don't care about anyone but myself, etc. But like... The more you get to know him, you're like, oh, yeah, he's full of shit. He's a really nice dude, and he's trustworthy and and friendly, and I like him. And he says these other words, but, like, you ignore those because the actual signals that he sends don't match his words, and the signals are more trustworthy than the words he's saying. And so you can totally coordinate and and rely on him, even though he says these weird words, because whatever. It does, doesn't matter. He's actually a cool, trustworthy dude. He makes he, he at least in my limited experience with him in mine too. I, he he says things that would make you think like, oh, he's the kind of person who will kill me and harvest my organs, <laughs> and yet he won't. In fact, he'll move mountains to make sure that everyone has all the organs they need without anyone dying. Right? It's at least so I don't far know about the moving ma- mountains. Ma- part, ma- maybe but... he's waiting for the opportunity, but okay. I, yeah. I'm not. I haven't gotten that vibe. I, unfortunately, Wes, you seem like a really nice guy. So. <laughs> despite uh, your, despite your best efforts, <laughs> my like intuition here is that Wes just likes to be a contrarian and to have debates about stuff and so like picks unpopular opinions and then tends to actually have well backed up reasons for them and mm-hmm. we I've had a bunch of like debates with Wes when like after like two three hours like I'm like we're just we're arguing or, or rather we have the same position here so we're just angrily agreeing with each other because you phrased it in a troll way yeah and it, got me again <laughs> I, I just i think it's a lovely example of how you will signal trustworthiness by actually being trustworthy even if you're trying to say things that are untrustworthy like yeah actually be trustworthy and you will get these higher payoff scenarios i wanted to say it because i was uh dissing on thought experiments earlier i really really enjoy them and i find them highly valuable mm-hmm. i think that depending on what people are trying to do with them sometimes they're they they run afoul of like reasonableness but um like another, I'm trying to think of just a couple quick ones because I've got lots that I really love. I mean, the um, like trolley problem. Trolley problem is a good one. I was thinking, was it Nozick? Was that the thought experiment, or is that the um, experience machine? Um, I'm not. I don't remember who that it one's is. Not but, ringing a bell. But the experience machine is the one where I, I picture like a TARDIS. Um, you go in and it'll it'll give you it'll make you have a happy experience, whatever whatever that means to you. It reads your reads your mind and gives you a happy experience. And then you ask people, would you want to enter this machine? And I think presented that way, people are like, yeah, that sounds fun. Especially fun way to kill a couple hours. It's like taking drugs, right? Especially if it looks like a TARDIS. And then if you ask them, okay, well, so now when you step into the machine, it'll erase your memory that it that it's a machine and you're plugged into a simulated matrix that is just going to be your perfect utopia, but you won't know that it's all fake. So then you're just wireheading. Right. And so a lot of people say no, that they'd prefer that, prefer not to do that. And that is in... in instructive and informative of like how people work and what they value right mm-hmm. um you know the, the the trolley problems those are fun utilitarian intuition pumps and then they get kind of silly with like well would you push the fat man in front of the train and it's like okay so you're telling me that there's a guy next to me on an overhang that's overwatching a trolley which i don't know it, when the last time anyone ever saw a trolley but let's just ignore <laughs> that live part in the bay it. there's quite a few of them okay uh there used to be one that went through downtown fort collins where i grew up but oh. um the uh the idea that okay, so there's a there's a like overhang you on when it. You were a kid, I think so. Cool, but in any case, uh, there's an overhang, right? And so you know the 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 idea is like okay, well, how about you push the fat guy? 
which is still one life versus five. But then, like, you have to just ignore the fact, like, okay, you're telling me that this guy's fat enough that his bulk will stop a train or a trolley, but I can also push him over the edge? And how will I know that he's heavy enough? Like, so you have to you have to push in all these ridiculous things to make it work mm-hmm. when all you're really trying to do is just demonstrate that the the important point of, like, no, look, people seem to have a different reaction when they have to directly intervene in a hands-on way. Mm-hmm. And that's that's valuable, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I had one more thought experiment that I really liked. I mean, I like all I like all of them. They're all great. But like I said, the the more you have to stretch them to try and tie like all the corners up to where you have to force the person to look at the one thing and see, aha, well now you believe this. Like there's the um I like I still like them no matter how much you stretch them. It's just the aha you believe this part I think should be always left out because that's just not true. We're right. having fun talking about thought experiments. We're not trying to show people that they're actually secret Hitler. Exactly. One of my earliest times hanging out with my now wife, I was talking with a guy back in college about like, uh, we were we were philosophizing over coffee at a coffee shop. It was tight. Talking about like the Socratic method and how um, he did like, you know, his whole thing was walking around, asking a lot of clarifying questions and proving that no one knew what they were talking about. Mm-hmm. And then that annoyed everyone so much that they all voted to kill him. Mm-hmm. Um, so <laughs> one of them would be like, you know, what is justice? Well, justice is paying back what you owe. Okay, so like, if I lend, if if someone lent you, say, their axe, it's just to give it back. Well, of course, that's 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 the way to do it. Well, what if you knew that when you gave it back, they were going to kill their wife with it? And it's like, well, you know, I, I maybe... Well, I context give... matters. Well, that, that, that's the thing, right? And so he and I were going back and forth on this about, like, the reliability of how could we know that? You know, does that really matter? If justice, etc. And... <laughs> My wife like looks up from her phone or something and she's just like, I'll just call the cops. And I'm like, <laughs> see, that's the kind of grounded answer that gets us out of, uh, you know, our heads out of the clouds. And it's like, if I knew with certainty this guy was trying to kill somebody, it's w- justice and uh, the, you know, the ethics of returning borrowed goods aside, this guy's going to try and kill somebody. Let's do the smart thing and we can leave our philosophizing aside, it, you know, if we're trying to decide what we're actually going to do in actual reality, right? Yeah. Now, the the Socratic method there is instructive in that people don't have a good one-sentence answer to what they mean to a lot of concepts that they seem to think that they have an intuitive good answer to, right? So there's still value there, but I I think it's important to keep your eye on the ball, right? And my my yeah. the ball here being, like, what would I actually do in real life? Yeah, there's, um, I mean, thought experiments, I think, are morally neutral. Uh, they are tools, and you can use them to give people intuition pumps about ways that they're actually miscalibrated or acting uh, not in their best interests or just like, you know, for fun mental masturbation. But like I've run into people who use thought experiments as a way to try to like trap people into a position they don't actually endorse and then get have a like gotcha moment oh. or like prove that they're smarter than them or something. And then that's just doing it in bad faith. And uh, yeah, be responsible with your thought experiments y'all <laughs> <laughs> i agree agreed well shall we wrap it up yeah i think so okay i had fun with this and i, I did like that it again did what i wanted it want thought experience to do which is bring it home in real life yeah so i can imagine talking to my boss that that stuff happens all the time yeah. i can't imagine meeting a mind reading god that presents me with two boxes <laughs> i can imagine it but not in real life yeah yeah all right fun on a bun cool um yeah, who are we uh, going to thank for things? I believe it is Stevens Go? Is it? Well, it well, well, is. my lucky day. 
We want to thank this person for being generous and trustworthy enough, but particularly generous and kind to to give us some of their hard-earned money so that we can feel like we are doing something good for the community as well. So yeah, thank you for being this person and therefore signaling that you can be this person and getting more higher reward opportunities in the future. This person is Bella Lee. Thank you so much, Bella. Bella Lee. I think I said that too fast. Um, Bella Lee. Bella Lee. Bella Lee. That's your new name. Anyway, you rock. We, we appreciate it. Inyash said all the things. Um, if you ever find yourself in a situation where you're thanking people for giving you money in this context, you'll realize why it's so awkward for most of us to struggle through doing it. But uh, that the awkwardness doesn't um, doesn't mean we don't really appreciate it. It just means I don't know how to properly thank you without feeling weird. Yeah, I <laughs> always blank on the thank the patron where you're just like, oh my god, I don't even know what to say. Like, that would capture my gratitude and you know yeah usually actually saying thank you <laughs> is fine and well received i feel like i run into this in other situations too like when someone you know is like oh, my dog died and i just run into like oh no i'm bad at consoling people because i don't know the perfect mouth words to use that will make them feel better and like usually it's just like oh i'm sorry dude that sucks like yeah <laughs> well Thank you, everybody, for listening to us as well. If you can't donate uh, on our Patreon, there's also the rating and reviewing and helping spread the word and all that good stuff. Hang out with us on Discord. Uh, yeah. Comment on the subreddit. Email us at BayesianConspiracyPodcast at gmail.com. Yes. If you really want to. We don't get a lot of those, but once in a while. Um, anyway, thanks again. This was fun. Cool. We'll see you all in two weeks. Oh, wait. Did we tell them next the next time. Oh, we did tell them the next Less Wrong Posts already, right? Yeah. I believe we did. All right. Well, now we're signing off. Yeah.